Welcome to the Act and Unwind podcast, an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. I'm your host, Eric Cohn. Thank you for listening, and I want to ask that if you're listening to us on our website, that you navigate now to the show notes for this episode, and there you're going to find a link for you to subscribe directly to Act and Unwind at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else where you find fine podcasts. And if you like this program, please leave us a five-star review at Apple Podcasts so that more people can find our show. This week, I'm joined by Sam Gregg, Acton's Director of Research, and Stephen Barrows, Chief Operating Officer here at Acton. Today, we're going to discuss whether sanctions are effective and or moral, and if Americans should be expected to fight for their country. But first, I want to go up, which is exactly where inflation has been heading. We got new inflation numbers at the end of last week, and boy, this report was a doozy. Inflation is up 7.9% over last year. That is the biggest spike since 1982. So we've been we've been talking around the idea of we're uh, if we're going to relive the 1970s. Well, we're back to 1982 and it looks like we're in a DeLorean headed back in time right now with a trajectory towards the 1970s. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into the comparisons to the 70s and how much they actually hold in a bit here. Um but it it's bad. Uh, along with that general spike in inflation, the average gas price is up 79 cents in the last two weeks. The uh, average is now at $4.43 a gallon. That is $1.54 higher than it was a year ago. Of course, some of this is being impacted by what is going on in Ukraine right now. That is the political argument being made by President Joe Biden that this is uh, inflation is Vladimir Putin's fault. Um, which, of course, is, I think, a little interrupted by the fact that we were seeing inflation well before any of this started happening. But we will dive into all of that today. And Steve, uh, as an economist, I want to throw it to you first to tell us um, what is happening with inflation. I mean, this is a big spike, 7.9% year over year. Uh, again, biggest spike since 1982. What do you make of all of it? Right. Well, I think there's a, a confluence of things that are going on that are making inflation particularly acute at this time. There's obviously the supply dimension of this and the supply shocks that have been exacerbated by the war on Ukraine and uh, and the impact it has had on oil prices and uh, energy costs in general. Of course, energy is just a vital component of the supply side of any production uh, occurring in an economy. And when you have something like this happening with uh, in, in Russia and the Ukraine, it's going to have uh, ripple effects across the global economy. You know, the other factor here um, is, of course, the, the demand side, which as the economy is re- recovering from COVID globally, you're seeing that all the stimulus and the and the uh, purchasing of, of treasuries by the Federal Reserve has just pumped so much money into the economy. Uh, in fact, uh, Steve Hanke in the Wall Street Journal recently wrote that over the course of uh, the past two years, M2, which is one of the major uh, measures of money in, in the United States, has grown by over 40%. And when you have that kind of economic uh, you know, stimulus on the monetary side, there's going to be no, no stopping the inflationary pressures that you're going to see in the economy. So these both a supply dimension and a demand dimension are, are what's manifesting themselves in the marketplace. And here you have it, almost 8% inflation year over year. It's pretty, pretty striking. How do you or how can you separate out – the different factors in all of this. So prior to what was happening with energy prices because of what is happening in Ukraine with Russia's invasion and the sanctions that have been put on, and we'll get into sanctions in a little bit here, uh, you had inflation rising. Um, We've had 
people on, we've talked about this on this podcast. Uh, I talked about it with David Bonson uh, on Acton Line as well, of how much of this was driven, at least in the beginning, by the pandemic of the last two years and the choices that were made that have affected things along the supply chain. To what extent can we isolate these individual factors of it? So there's the factor of energy prices going up right now because of the war in Ukraine. There's the factor of um, all of the money that has been spent. And there's the factor of the supply shock that was created because of the COVID pandemic. Can we separate that out at all? Or is it just kind of all mixed together in this big inflation stew and you can't pull the component parts apart? Well, I think that in some cases you can disentangle some of the effects. You might look at the producer price index to see what the kind of costs are that are uh, going into the producers producing the things that they need for the for, for consumption. Another thing that you could take a look at is just what's happening to credit creation by the banking sector. And so to the extent that you see banks suddenly issuing loans that they were very hesitant to do so during the pandemic, that would be a sign that you actually have monetary policy that's influencing this and, uh, and, and banks in turn becoming more confident that the economy is growing and that they can make these loans that they weren't previously willing to make. So uh, that's a more technical question of trying to separate and disentangle those effects. But I, I think one of the things is that the monetary side, uh, the, which is going to affect the demand side primarily, is something that's going to be a problem in the long term. Um, we, we don't really know for sure how the supply chain shocks, you know, the labor market and so forth are going to unfold over the course of the next uh, you know, year or so. Um, you s- could see those pressures die down, but the Federal Reserve is definitely going to have to grapple with what they've done in the past couple of years and just filling the, the, the banking sector with, uh, with cash. Sam, how long do you think this can continue before we start needing to have serious conversations had about what the Federal Reserve should be doing about it if they need to go full Paul Volcker and repeat what happened in the early 1980s, which is essentially to induce a recession, to break us out of the stagflation that so characterized the end of the 1970s? I mean, you... Given what we know of that and how uh, politically unpopular it would be to essentially do what what Reagan and Volcker Volcker were committed to, which is inducing a recession there, um, that is probably not the message that Joe Biden wants to communicate, especially with uh, elections coming up at the end of this year. The message, as I mentioned, that we're hearing from Joe Biden is that this is all Vladimir Putin's fault, which – strains credulity, should we say, uh, in that so much of this was happening prior to what happened in Russia. But how how long do you think this can continue before we really need to see the Federal Reserve starting to get serious about addressing it so it doesn't become a runaway problem like it was in the 70s? Even more uh, incredulous, I think, was Nancy Pelosi's comment on the weekend that government spending was the way that we get out of inflation. <laughs> the, the, the whole, yes, the whole justification of uh, you know they want to spend more money, but this is deflationary spending is just one of those things that like I, I I could turn my head around in a circle trying to like squint and look at it the right way to get it to make sense. Well, it doesn't make sense, right? And that's the point. And what President Biden and uh, Speaker Pelosi said on the weekend about inflation is simply untrue. It's detached from reality. It's detached from some of the realities of monetary policy that have been going on now for quite some time. So, but to get to your, your point, your question, Eric, 
one of the mandates of the Federal Reserve is stable prices. The other is what's called a sort of some sort of level of employment, uh, adequate level of employment or some such words. And I think it's fair to say that the Fed has failed to fulfill its inflation mandate, that is to keep stable prices. Prices are not stable right now. They're going up at this particular rate, which is unhealthy for the economy and does a lot of damage to ordinary people's lives. What will the Fed do about this? Well, I think one thing they need to do if they're going to fulfill the inflation part of their mandate, monetary stability part of their mandate, is to start raising interest rates. Now, they have signaled, some have signaled, some members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve have signaled that they want to do that. But even then, there's this um and ahhing and, well, we'll see how it goes and we may have to adjust, etc., in other words, the signals we're getting are mixed. Now, my, my expectation is that the Federal Reserve will move to increase uh, interest rates at the next sitting or on the board, when the FOMOC, as it's called, the Monetary Policy Committee meets, I suspect that they will raise interest rates. The question is really whether they have the will, and I just don't mean the, the ability to sort of make the choice to do this, but whether they have the political will to do this as well, because it's not clear to me that the Federal Reserve has many monetary hawks on its board right now. It's not helped by the fact that they're living in a political environment in which leading government officials are saying things that you would expect uh, presidents of Argentina to say when it comes to this subject of inflation. So they know they know that the political climate is such and the political leadership is such that uh, the, the moment they moved in this down this path, they're going to start getting pressure from the administration to slow down. We maybe we need to take things more carefully, et cetera, et cetera. And I don't have a lot of confidence, given the composition of the Federal Reserve right now, that they will do what needs to be done. Now, let's also remember that in doing so, if they do move in the direction of raising interest rates and tightening monetary policy, it essentially represents a repudiation of many of the stances that the Federal Reserve has taken, really going back over the past, well, 20 years, the whole way that they've approached monetary policy. And it's very difficult for an institution like the Federal Reserve that has moved in a particular direction and adopted a particular stance for such a long period of time to institutionally say, no, we were wrong. They probably won't say that out loud, but to move in a very aggressive way to deal with the inflation problem is in a way a repudiation and a, of, of past policies and an admission that they got some serious things wrong. And that is very hard for any institution to admit. Well, isn't that just the story of our time at this point? I mean, so much in terms of COVID policy and the reason that you have seen this very slow acquiescence to changes in COVID policy that are, if you actually go out in the rest of the country, not in Washington, D.C., which of all the cities that I've traveled to over the last couple of years is the most, um, if you'll pardon the phrase, COVID fascistic. You know, my, my Lyft driver in Washington, D.C. would not unlock the car until I put a mask on, um, which is just, I think, 
emblematic of the mentality that exists in that city. But so much of it is just a refusal to recognize that uh, these things should – these policies should be ended. These mitigation measures should be ended. And whether you want to make an argument about at the very beginning of all of this, if they were necessary, they became less so over time. And they were maintained longer than they probably should have been. <clears throat> and so much of the reason why you have politicians reticent to change anything, why you get – the uh, public transportation and aviation mask mandate being extended by another 30 days when there is just, I'm sorry, no good reason for that to continue to be extended, especially since airlines, the HEPA filters that exist on an airplane are way better than having a mask on. Um, there's just no reason for it, but they just can't admit that they were wrong. Yeah. You know, I, I, I want to <clears throat> add to this what you're, what you're saying about the change in policy and admitting that they were wrong. I just finished working through a book called The Great Demographic Reversal. And ironically enough, the day after I finished reading the book, the Wall Street Journal interviewed one of the co-authors, uh, Charles Goodhart. Uh, this, was, this was last week. And what he pointed out was, was – and what this book points out is that the Federal Reserve in general is going to be facing even more headwinds than they would have otherwise anticipated because of demographic shifts that occurred globally. That with, with China entering into the global marketplace you know, from the late 90s into the, you know, th to the present, uh, the enormous increase in labor force that had access to global markets and cheap wages coming from China and production in China accordingly. Now China has reached peak workforce. Their population has more than likely reached its peak now and beginning to decline. And this is actually going to create on the supply side inflationary pressures as wages start to go up across the board. And so although the Federal Reserve had patted itself on the back for many, many years with for what was called the great moderation, uh, they probably assumed too much credit for what was going on in the 90s and the 2000s up to the financial crisis for the steady growth and low prices and so forth when in fact it was more a supply side phenomenon because of the entry of China with its huge workforce into the global marketplace. Now we're seeing that reversing. And by the way, it's also just the shape of, the, of global demographics as well. As you have larger cohorts retire, they tend to consume more than they produce and the other and the cohorts following behind them are going to produce more than they consume but not by the same ratio that you had before. So these are going to be some real challenges that central banks across the globe are going to be facing on the supply side. And on that, on that point, I think it's important to at the following observation, and that is that for se several years now, if not a couple of decades, governments around the world have basically let central banks uh, take on all sorts of functions that have nothing to do with central banking in the sense of if the purpose of central banking is monetary stability, that's the central purpose. Well, I think it's fair to say that we've seen central banks around the world, the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the Bank of England, the Bank of China, doing all sorts of things that are basically filling the gap of what governments should be doing on the fiscal side. In some respects, I think it's fair to say in the United States, we've seen the Federal Reserve essentially take on, take on fiscal-like responsibilities. And this is a big problem because it's institutionally a problem in terms of Congress and the successive administrations not doing their job. And my fear, which is to get to Steve's point, is that people will start looking to central banking and monetary policy as a way of trying to circumvent the problems that are going to come down the line with regard to this 
widespread demographic decline that's going on all around the world. The temptation will be to say, okay, we're going to have less demand because we have less people coming through. Therefore, we have to stimulate demand and we'll use monetary policy to do that. And that's that's very, very worrying. And it's very tempting for politicians to allow that to happen because it lets them off the hook. I'll stipulate up front that this is somewhat of an unfair question because I'm asking you to uh, mind read the board members of the Federal Reserve, um, which could be a very dark place that we probably don't want to go. But I'm going to ask the question anyway. How much of them seeming to be caught with their pants down a little bit here is a result of the pandemic that if you were take, you know, in imagine Earth two where all of the factors right now are the same. We're seeing the same inflation numbers, but we didn't just go through a global pandemic. Um, I don't have a hard time imagining that their reaction and the things that they might be doing and considering doing, um, they may have already acted on without that exigent circumstance of having gone through a global pandemic. Is it an excuse in some ways to say that they're refusing to act um, or that so far they've been reticent to take any kinds of actions to deal with inflation because you can just point to this Rorschach test that is the, the global pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic and say, well, it's because of all that stuff and it's going to get itself sorted out and we're going to be more or less back on track and things will be fine and we won't have to take what I imagine, I guess is my next question too, politically unpopular decisions like raising interest rates? Well, I think whenever the Federal Reserve jumps in to a perceived crisis, whether it was the financial crisis back in 2008 or whether it was the pandemic, you know, they're dealing with uncertainty and they're just reacting to try to make sure you don't have economic collapse. I think it becomes much more challenging once you have infused so much expansionary monetary policy into the banking system to have a clear exit strategy. And so, you know, right now, I think that they're looking at this, they're saying, okay, it looks like the pandemic has really, um, you know, we're, we're getting, getting around the corner, um, but that still leaves the question open how do we extract ourselves from all of this liquidity that we've put into the into the marketplace without you know causing pain and and frankly it really can't be done i mean you 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 have to have some pain well, i was just going to say that the uh, the corollary of that is that the whole purpose of one of the logics of central banks is that you have these institutions that are supposed to be somewhat politically insulated from the pressures of the immediate so that they can think about the long term for monetary policy. Instead, that has not happened. We've had central banks reacting almost immediately to particular circumstances that are out there at any one particular point in time. Notice, for example, when Russia invaded Ukraine, suddenly we hear noises from the Federal Reserve. Oh, oh well, this means we're going to have to, you know, we have, might have to adjust expectations about what people thought we might we were going to do because this invasion has happened. It's going to cause problems when it comes to the supply of certain goods, etc. Maybe we need to rethink what we were going to do. No, your job is to think in terms of two years in the future three years, four years, not the latest news cycle. And that's, I think, one of the problems with central banking today. It's lost sight that it's all about the long term rather than just reacting to whatever happens to be the latest news item for which there's a call for immediate action to address. It shows you how all of our institutions have just been infused with that mentality, though, right? That all we are is thinking the next step in front of us rather than thinking in any kind of a long game. Um, to, to the point about how much money is in the system now, if, if, if I understand 
uh, correctly, the modern monetary theorists. That the idea that you can, you know, spend as much money as you want because you're spending it in your uh, in your own currency that you're creating, and it's fine. And if we get inflation, the way that we solve that is by raising taxes to take the money out of the system. Um, it, it's as if nobody who proposed this ever thought. Do you know what Americans just generally aren't fans of? tax increases. Now, whether you want to make an argument that, you know, we have a a political problem oriented around the fact that people want a lot of spending and they don't want a lot in taxation, that is a political problem. There is a disconnect between, between how much Americans want in benefits that come from government spending and how much they are willing to pay in taxes. I mean, you could have a welfare state like they have in most of Europe, but you need to pay taxes like they pay in Europe, especially on the middle class. And that is just you could tell it's not a politically popular position because other than Bernie Sanders in you know just his most intimate of moments, nobody is willing to ever admit that, you know, we probably need to raise taxes on the middle class. It is always we need to cut taxes on the middle class. And we land ourselves in these political traps where we've created a problem that I don't even know. I'm not an economist and I don't play one on TV or on a podcast. That's why Steve's here. That taxing, raising taxes to take that money out of the system would even work to accomplish what the the MMT people want. But it's just politically impossible. It doesn't matter if it would work. It's never going to happen. Right. Yeah. Lawrence Kotlikoff has done a lot of work on this. If you take a look at contingent liabilities based on what the law says our entitlements will give us over the course of the next several decades, I mean, the United States is not in a good position uh, because, yeah, there is a disconnect between what the government is promising to give us and uh, and what then we're willing to accept as tax rates to be able to provide those, those guineas. And monetary policy is a way of squaring that circle. Absolutely. That's the problem. Yes. Right? So instead of Instead of cutting spending, which of course is the other thing you need to do, if you're going to, <laughs> if you if you cut spending, that's a way, one way of redu- government spending. That's one way of reducing the amount of money flowing into the system, right? That's one way of doing it. But uh, people don't want that. That's politically unpopular too. So you have people wanting the government to spend as much or more. They don't want to raise taxes. So how do you deal with that problem? There's two incompatibilities. You pump more money into the system via the central bank. I want to focus on the energy element of this just for a minute before we get off of this topic. So as I mentioned at the beginning here, uh, average gas price uh, has risen 79 cents in the last two weeks. The nationwide uh, average price is $4.43 per gallon. Uh, I was just in California at the end of last week. So I saw in real life one of those, you know, five and a half dollar a gallon gas uh, gas stations out in the Los Angeles area, again, up $1.54 over what it was was last year. And of all of these kinds of topics, this one, I will admit, is one of the most maddening to me. Because on one hand, I do want to acknowledge, because I want to acknowledge this as a reality in almost all spheres where we talk about the impact of particularly the president, but of politicians on what happens in the economy. They have a role, but it's it, it's almost like the way we treat coaches with sports teams. Um, when they do really good, they get too much credit. And when they do really bad, they get too much blame. And I think that's true of the president in most cases, especially when it comes to things like gas prices. The, the suggestions from some people of, oh, if Donald Trump had just won the election, we would still have gas prices at like a buck 54, like they were through most of the Trump administration, I just don't think is in any way realistic. However, 
there are policy choices that have been made by the Biden administration with regard to energy that are contributing to this problem. Yes, the war in Ukraine is and what we've done in terms of sanctions with Russian oil is having an impact on this. But it is also the decisions of the Biden administration on energy policy that are helping to drive this up. And the one thing that I, you know, if I had any hair left, I would tear it all out over this is the Keystone Pipeline. I just find this to be one of the most maddening things because we've been talking about this for a decade, if not more. And what you always hear from people opposed to the Keystone Pipeline in the list of bullet points, talking points that they have on it, oh, it would be years off. The impact is years off from now. You know, so it's not uh, it, it, in these moments where we have high gas prices, it's not something that's going to alleviate it immediately. Two problems with that. Number one, um, sending signals of a commitment to a project like that will have effects on what oil and gas companies are willing to do because it shows um, some stability going forward in that market. It shows some policy commitment that they're allegedly going to stick to that sends them signals on what investments they should make right now and what should happen in the moment. Also, it has been if, – if they would have just decided to do it in 2010 or 2011, it wouldn't be a few years off. It would have been something that happened already. But these are ideological positions of an opposition to oil and natural gas that I can comprehend. But at the same time, they make me want to pound my head into the table. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, certainly this has exacerbated the situation. And one of the things I keep thinking, if, if the goal is to eventually wean people down from fossil fuels and go to alternative energy sources, you could approach that a couple of different ways. One would be to shut down supply and, and production, right? The other would be to simply tax it more, okay? And although both of those are, are choices that aren't particularly savory, I mean, why would you shut down the production side? Why not use taxes to gain more revenue to address some of the things that were previously we had discussed about, you know, whether or not we're willing to pay for the promises that we make in terms of entitlements? And I'm not sure why you would ever want to just shut down all these different options for production of energy. So, yeah, it sounds to me like uh, that, that not only is it just imprudent policy, but also has exacerbated the problem. We're also seeing uh, – I can't, I can't think of any other way to describe it beyond sort of fantasy politics, fantasy economics. So as a consequence of a lot of this – so, for example, we have the Biden administration going to Venezuela. Venezuela, which is – uh, Marxist, crony, authoritarian dictatorship that has been subject to sanctions, which we're going to be talking about soon, and and basically suggesting that, well, maybe we'll lift some of the sanctions in return for oil supplies. So, so can someone tell me what is the difference between digging or getting fossil fuels out of Venezuela as opposed to Texas when it comes to the uh, uh, what many people believe to be the effects of on the environment of these types. So, does it really matter if it's in Venezuela or Texas? I mean, this this is the this is the type of maze that so many politicians lock themselves into once they become committed to such an ideologically charged position of we are going to eliminate fossil fuels, but it's okay if we get the oil from Venezuela as long as we don't drill it in Montana 
or Texas. Yeah, th- this is the maddening thing to me about these conversations around the issue of climate change. And I, I've, I can't remember um, who it was I got this from, but uh, uh, I heard an interview with someone who described himself as a lukewarmer. That I think climate change is real. I think that it's happening, and I think most of the dystopian and catastrophic predictions that people make about it are probably completely untrue. Um, but it is the kind of thing that I'm I'm interested in policy and a policy agenda that would deal with all of this. But the the way that we talk about it is just so bizarrely parochial that we're concerned about you know what Americans and only Americans are doing that we have to lessen our use of all of it. I, I'm sorry if that's what you're concerned about is emissions. If you don't have a plan that addresses what China and India are doing, you don't have a plan. They are the biggest ex, uh, uh, polluters from that perspective. So I don't – these conversations are just maddening to me also because the, in terms of taking things off the table – Nuclear power. Nuclear power is always immediately off the table because, uh, weirdly enough, of um, the failure of a nuclear power plant under the Soviets uh, in Chernobyl, uh, which is – you know, a disaster, again, made of the fact that it was the, you know, the disinformation problem, the inability to say what's actually true in the Soviet Union. You know, I, I know that it's a fictionalized account, but if you haven't seen the miniseries Chernobyl, at least give you a sense of how nobody was able to say the truth. And that's a huge problem. And Three Mile Island here in the United States, which is admittedly a success story because they contained the problem that they had and the uh, Japanese nuclear plant, which was hit by a tsunami. I mean, again, if these are the three examples that we've got, it's like airplane crashes, right? They stick out in our minds so much because there's so few of them. But again, nuclear immediately off the table in these conversations. Yeah, and Germany, Germany taking so many of it, I think all but three of its nuclear plants offline. And at the end of this calendar, you're supposed to take the remaining <laughs> three offline. Just doesn't give it any, any leverage in the situation currently faced with Russia. So, In fact, I think the German chancellor announced, maybe it was last week, something along the lines of that Germany was going to reconsider that decision by Angela Merkel. Now, it's, very, it's probably a good thing because I think that Germany should be con- reconsidering most decisions made by Angela Merkel over the past uh, 16 years. But even more bizarrely, this week, China announced that it's going to be engaging in much more mining, mining for raw materials in their own country. So we're doing all these things. China is actually going down the path of doing more things that many people believe contribute to climate change. So this this is the bizarreness of it all, that somehow thinking that well, we just stop doing this, then somehow these problems are going to go away, compounded by, as you say, Eric and Steve, this refusal to entertain real options like nuclear power that could, in many respects, deal with some of these problems. I want to move on to the issue of sanctions. We've talked a little bit about them and the impact that they are having, certainly on gas prices. Um, there's not an inconsiderable amount that we are doing here. I'll give a quick rundown of some of them in the oil and gas world. Uh, U.S. is banning all Russian oil and gas imports, and the U.K. will phase out Russian oil by the end of 2022. Uh, the EU, which gets a quarter of its oil and 40% of its gas from Russia, says it will switch to alternative supplies and make Europe independent from Russian energy well before 2030. Germany has put on um, 
on hold the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline from Russia. There are additional financial measures. Western countries have frozen the assets of Russia's central bank. Uh, You have um, some Russian banks are being removed from the international financial messaging system, SWIFT. Uh, UK sanctions include major Russian banks, all Russian banks um, having their assets frozen. Uh, They've targeted individuals, the so-called oligarchs, um, for individual action as well. Trade, uh, there are now restrictions on trade with Russia, although as we've noted in previous episodes of this podcast, it's not quite like we're uh, having to stop trade with China. We don't do a lot of trading with Russia other than, of course, on the energy sector. Um, What I want to discuss about this is two questions. Are these sanctions effective? And I don't just mean it creating financial or economic pain in the country. I think it's obvious that that is true. But are they effective in producing any of the results that they're allegedly implemented to produce, which is – this is like criminal justice. It depends on how you want to look at it. Are we trying to get Putin to change course as a result of these sanctions or are we just trying to punish Vladimir Putin for the actions he's taken and this is the means that we've chosen to do it? Well, I mean, I think in general, sanctions tend to harm the, the citizens of that country the most, just the ordinary citizen. And if you take a look at the history of sanctions, that's typically what they do. They don't necessarily cause the leadership, especially in dictatorships and otherwise, uh, to suddenly change course because those strong men typically have very – uh, great leverage over their populations and can you know shut down dissent, shut down protests. I mean, it certainly hasn't caused any kind of long-run change here in Venezuela, as an example we yeah. used earlier. And uh, and so you know, generally speaking, they they harm the. By the way, they also tend to harm the individual citizens within the country that's imposing them. So uh, just by raising costs to the individual citizens. So it is an instrument, obviously, of political power. Um, I think in general they tend to to, to not be a pretty blunt instrument to deal with a problem that you're trying to make, which is, of course, changing the leadership's choices. I think <clears throat> sanctions have to be considered in the context of other things that are going on in a particular circumstance <clears throat> in a particular country. So <clears throat> there are, as Steve says, sanctions do have these types of effects. They have not, for example, shifted the Cuban regime. American sanctions, the embargo on, on Cuba has not shifted or changed the leadership of the Communist Party in Cuba. On the other hand, there are some examples in more recent history where sanctions do seem to have played a role, a role amongst lots of other things that were going on in shifting the needle towards uh, a a removal of some significant injustices. The, The classic example, I think, is South Africa. So in the late 1980s, all through the 1980s, It really began with sport in the first place. So sport was banned. South African teams could not play abroad. Countries could not send teams to South Africa to play. Uh, I remember growing up in Australia in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, and the whole issue of South African participation in cricket was a big deal because South Africans really cared about cricket and rugby. But then it moved on to trade sanctions towards the in the 1980s trade sanctions that were applied against South Africa. Now, this did hurt poorer South Africans. There's no question about that. But it also hurt the South African business community quite significantly. And the South African business community was 
obviously overwhelmingly white at the time. So that caused some significant disquiet in South Africa uh, within the business community. That had an impact upon the government at the time, which was an apartheid regime, of course, but was also subject to political pressures from below from the white South African community. So did it did it sanctions result in the end of apartheid? Did it result in Nelson Mandela getting released from jail, etc.? Well, by itself, no, that's clearly not the case. There are a lot of other things that were going on, particularly the end of the Cold War, when the rationale for supporting South Africa as a as a um, as a buffer against the expansion of communist regimes in Africa, that logic went away with the end of the Cold War. But I do think that sanctions in that case, that's an example where I think sanctions played a role in shifting the needle because of the specific circumstances in South Africa at the time. You could say the same thing about a similar regime, Rhodesia, um, to the north of South Africa, now today is Zimbabwe. Sanctions clearly had a role in squeezing the regime there. But those are specific circumstances, specific instances, and very different to what we see in Russia or Venezuela or or North Korea, for that matter, or name any number of countries. So it really, I think, the whole sanctions things, to think that they are going to fix a problem, I think is problematic at the best. Whether they have an effect, well, I think that depends upon the specifics of the situation you're dealing with. Well, in a sense, isn't this is like the examples of the uh, problematic nuclear power uh, plants that I gave earlier, that we can think of the South Africa, we can think of Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, in these cases where it did have uh, more or less the desired effect. But as Sam just rattled off, there's so many other cases where we did these things and it does not seem to have made all that much of a difference other than to create hardships, yes, for the people in power in those countries. But those are in most cases also. You know, there's speculation that Vladimir Putin could be the world's wealthiest man. We've really no idea how much, um, you know, running a kleptocracy, how much wealth he has uh, squirreled away in different places. Those are people who can get around it. It is going to be the, you know, middle, lower middle class and poorer people of those countries that are going to feel the brunt of it and not have ways to get around it, which I guess leads me to the second question, which is, is this a moral option? If the brunt of this is going to fall primarily on those groups of people um, who are not the people uh, who are in power, they are not Vladimir Putin, they are not these oligarchs. Uh, is this a moral tool to use if who, the people who we're primarily punishing are just the citizens of these countries? My thought would be sometimes it is, it can be um, morally uh, a morally proportionate response. Sometimes it's not. I just need to know a lot more about the particular circumstances and whether there is any possibility of sanctions moving circumstances within a country so that um, there is a chance that whoever the people are in power will eventually give up power or be removed from power. Uh, so I, I, I'm reluctant to say sanctions are always wrong, but I don't think they're always right either. So, so much depends upon, um, I think, very careful analysis of what's going on in the circumstances and then judging whether sanctions is a proportionate tool that may be legitimately used, knowing that as a side effect of this action, there are going to be 
some people who suffer more as a consequence of this and who may not have actually anything to do with the regime itself. Yeah, it strikes me that you would evaluate in ways that you would similar to <clears throat> determining whether or not a particular war was just. Right. Right. I mean, we've, we've done this before, right? In, in times of war, sanctions are the norm. In fact, you put embargoes on entire countries when you go to war. So it's not as if it's a morally evil end, a means in itself. There are circumstances, I think, in which it's entirely appropriate or at least worthy to consider. But there are also these other considerations which I think you need to look at and you need to ask yourself, okay, is this going to achieve the end and are the side effects proportionate enough that they're acceptable? I think this is also why we get the conversation in Ukraine right now about a no-fly zone. Um, now, I think it is just true and fair that most people, when they hear that, aren't thinking of what a no-fly zone would actually mean, which is you may as well just declare war on Russia because eventually you're to enforce the no-fly zone, you're, you're going to have to shoot down um, – Russian planes, which means you're going to enter into a hot war with Russia. That's the reason why it can't happen. But I think the reason that it gets so much popularity is that it sounds like the kind of thing that you can just do that isn't declaring war and is just short of it. And we want to be seen as doing something about this. I think sanctions are a kind of similar thing here where it's the tool that is available when, you know, the only tool you have is a hammer. Every problem looks like a nail. So we pick the hammer up and we hit the nail. I think you see this also manifesting itself in some weird and frankly very dumb ways in some of the reactions uh, from institutions, organizations, and individual people. Um, I'm thinking of the Cardiff Symphony Orchestra canceling an all Tchaikovsky concert because, again, Tchaikovsky is Russian. Uh, I can guarantee you he doesn't have much to say about the Putin uh, regime because he's dead. Um, so the, the cancellation of this all Tchaikovsky concert, you have people who are boycotting or removing from shelves, uh, Stolichnia vodka or Smirnoff vodka. Uh, Stolichnia is, um, Latvian, um, and is owned by a Luxembourg based conglomerate. Smirnoff is, uh, originated in Russia, is now owned by the British company Diageo. Um, so again, not, neither of these products are made in Russia. They are not imports from Russia. Um, there is an Italian university that was banning lectures on Dostoevsky. They have backed off of that. Uh, and then the, this, this is when you know it's really hitting home. There was a sign that was put up in – and again, I did not know that this place existed, but it actually does exist. The Wisconsin Museum of Mustard where they have a sign up that says the Russian mustards have been temporarily removed. They will return once the invasion of Ukraine is over and Russia recognizes and respects the sovereign nation of Ukraine, which you always know you got to hit them in the mustard. That's where it hurts the <laughs> well, most. I mean, this is just virtue signaling. Exactly. Right? This, this, is, this is part of the problem. But what I, one thing which a lot of people have not thought about is that you know all this ESG stuff that tells us that it's wrong to invest in certain things, etc. Isn't it interesting that all these companies that have committed themselves to ESG, like BlackRock and all these other outfits, well, it turns out they've got a lot of investments in Putin's Russia. But I don't remember that being one of the criteria by which they assessed their, you know, the degree to which they are committed to these types of uh, ethically responsible investing. I mean, in other words, it's sort of shown how much some of this stuff really is 
virtue signaling and doesn't really reflect a serious appreciation of the moral responsibility of business. Let's move on to something that wouldn't be virtue signaling, although perhaps the answers to the question that happened in this poll might be some form of virtue signaling. We talked about just war earlier. I think we would all probably agree that if the United States was invaded by another country, fighting back against them would be just. So Quinnipiac has a poll. They uh, uh, polled 1,374 U.S. adults nationwide in a survey conducted between March 4th and March 6th. And these are opinions on a whole bunch of things, on Putin, on Russia, on Zelensky, on what is happening in Ukraine, American sentiment and all of that. But there was one question that has stuck out to a number of people and that stuck out to me. The question is, if you are in the same position as Ukrainians are now, meaning a foreign country has invaded. Do you think that you would stay and fight or leave the country? The answers are interesting. Overall, 55-38 is the split. Uh, 55% stay and fight, 38% leave the country. Among Republicans, 68% stay and fight, 25% leave the country. Democrats, 40% stay and fight, 52% leave the country. Independents, 57% stay and fight, 36% leave the country. Um, Among younger people, uh, it is almost an equal split, 18 to 34, which is the fighting age people that you would need in this circumstance. Uh, 45% stay and fight, 48% leave the country. Um, And it only goes up from there. 57% in the 35 to 49% range would stay and fight. 66 in the 50 to 64. And 52% of 65 and older say that they would stay and fight. The one number that stuck out to me the most, because you can do all the psychoanalysis on these numbers, both in terms of young people, uh, in terms of the partisan split, People with a four-year college degree, whether or not they have it, people with a four-year college degree, 55% stay and fight, 35% leave the country. Without, 58% stay and fight, 35% leave the country. There's almost so much of – when you look at polling data now – One of the key things to look at first is education. That is a big dividing line in a lot of things and for where public opinion falls. And on this one, they're almost exactly the same. I find that fascinating. (laughs) And I don't know if I can explain it. (laughs) That's interesting. I I don't know that I can explain it either. I mean I I think there is reason to be alarmed by this though, especially if you're looking at the 18 to 34-year-old that it's almost a complete even split between people who say they'd stay and fight and leave the country. I mean I I don't think that it is outrageous to suggest that if the United States of America was invaded by another country – that you have an obligation to stay and fight. Charlie Cook wrote a really good piece about this in National Review. Um, I think that, yes, that does become an obligation. Uh, he raises this question in there as well, and I'll throw this out, and, and you, both of you can weigh in on this however you want. You say you're going to leave the country. The United States of America has just been invaded by some foreign power. Where are you going? Yeah, exactly. Right. Canada. To Justin Trudeau's tyranny in Canada, that's where everybody's going. Well, <clears throat> I think, it, but what, I mean, this is not, I, I have to say, it did not surprise me too much because I think it reflects uh, some general trends that have been going on in many Western countries for a while. If you look, for example, at similar studies or similar analyses of public opinion that are done in a lot of European countries, for example, 
you see very, you see similar types of results, except there are fewer people that are inclined to defend their country. I think in, in the case of European countries, Finland and Poland were countries that were very inclined to defend themselves. Germany, not at all. Very, very, very little desire to to engage in any form of war whatsoever. Um, other countries like Italy, Spain, Portugal, a little better, but nonetheless, um, the the not encouraging results in terms of willingness to defend one's country. Britain was a little better. That's not surprising, I think. But <clears throat> I think we see the notion that one has obligations to the country that you belong to Concrete obligations is a consequence of being a member of the body politic, a member of a particular nation, and that this is not a cost-free thing, that there are things associated with this that has faded with significant portions of the population. Now, in the case of Europe, particularly Western Europe, I sort of get it because of the experience of two mass wars in the space of 40 years, which laid wreckage to an entire continent. I sort of understand why the why defending your country might not be so important compared to um, the destruction that would result from that. But it does reflect, I think, in many cases, this detachment from the sense of what does it mean to be a citizen of a particular nation in a particular point in time and what obligations you owe to the other citizens of that country and those who have gone before you as well. And it's, it's, I think there's a lot of detachment on the part of many people from that sense of belonging to a community that by virtue of belonging to it, there are certain things that are, that are let's call them duties, that are associated with that. You know, just adding to what Sam said, when I, when I saw these um, polling responses, it brought me back to my days as a Air Force Academy basic cadet. And if you'll indulge me for a moment, when we were, when I was a basic trainee at the Air Force Academy, they made us memorize all sorts of quotes, duty, honor, country-related quotes. And one that came to mind immediately was one by John Stuart Mill. And let me see if I can rattle it off. John Stuart Mill was quoted as saying, war is an ugly thing, but not the ugliest of things. The decayed and degraded state of moral and patriotic feeling which thinks that nothing is worth war is much worse. The person who has, for, who has nothing for which he is willing to fight, nothing which is more important than his own personal safety, is a miserable creature and has no chance of being free unless made and kept so by the exertions of better men than himself. So when I, when I thought about that quote, the first thing that comes to my mind is if you're not willing to stand up and endure hardship – for the sake of the freedoms that you have, if you're invaded by another country, what does that make you? As you're just going to rely on other people to do all the hard work, and so you know it was kind of disheartening to me, especially young people. And I think it's probably reflective of 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 a of a of a, a period that we've gone through. We've, we've enjoyed enormous uh, peace, prosperity, comfort. We haven't had to endure many hardships. And I think that makes people hesitant to, to stand up and actually endure hardship for something that is greater than their own you know, personal comfort. So I, I'm curious to see what you think of this, that the how much of this is connected to the last time that we had a draft was decades ago. We have an all-voluntary fighting force. Most people, as a result, are not 
connected directly to somebody who does serve in the military currently. Um, and as a result, we have this perception. I agree. Uh, there, there's almost this – this is like the, the you know, argument for American decadence, right? That we have had it so easy basically since the end of the Second World War. By and large, have had it so easy. We've just grown very comfortable and thus perhaps pr- uh, producing these kinds of answers in, in this polling question. Uh, that because it's so – we're so detached from it. That the American military just seems so incredibly powerful and it's all volunteer and you don't really know anybody. It's just the, the, the group of people. They'll take care of it, right? That's just the, the, the belief. I even think that it's true despite what we saw in uh, Vietnam, despite what we saw in the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I think most people had this feeling that if the U.S. military wanted to turn it up to 11 – like we could solve this problem immediately, but it was our own reticence to just go in there and do you know all of the terrible, awful, nasty things that would be necessary to putting a complete end to it tomorrow. And that's how it ends up getting dragged out like this. How much of this is the nature of the volunteer military being that removed from a draft? All things I'm in favor of, I want to be very clear about, um, creates this disconnection and as a result, this complacency about the safety and security of this country. Sure. Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it. And, uh, and you know, of course, I support the all-volunteer force, too. Uh, you know, one of the things I think is that when, when, you, when you don't have that connection, when you don't see the costs or are, are, are connected to people who are bearing those kinds of costs, uh, it's easy to think that you can just effectively outsource it, right? So, you know, if, if, that, if that's the, the attitude that's inculcated in the culture, then I can see why a number of people would say, well, let's just outsource the defense of the country while I go off to Canada for a little while until it's all over, <laughs> right? So um, I'm not so sure, you know, nobody wants war. And of course, there's all sorts of questions we would need to ask about what wars are just, whether or not it's, you know, it's victory is conceivable, et cetera. But you know the the uh, the gut instinct to say I'm going to leave and it's not uh, not going to stick around to defend if you're able bodied uh, that that is a bit disheartening to me personally. Let me let, can I just add one thing to this discussion? It's not the first time in the history of Western countries where we've seen this type of mentality emerge in terms of whether you're willing to defend your country. In the 1930s, at both Oxford and Cambridge, there were famous debates. The debate was. This house, meaning the Oxford Union or the Cambridge Union, will un- under no circumstances fight for its king and country. And that motion was passed at both universities, which at the time constituted the future elite of the entire country, of Britain, of the British Empire. That, so these, these, um, these institutions passed these motions saying, under no circumstances would we fight for king and country. And yet, nine years, well, what, six years later, Britain went to war and lots of those people went to war as well. So, I mean, it's, I think it's what the point I'm making is there's a theoretical level in which you can sort of pose that question and some people will react in particular ways, particularly younger people. But when push comes to shove, I think often people end up doing the exact opposite of what they thought they might do. 
Yeah, it takes a clarifying moment like that where, you know, it's one thing to talk about it in theory. It's another thing for um, the you-know-what to actually be hitting the fan. Um, and I would imagine there is – there's the part of me that is hopeful in all of this that if that terrible circumstance were ever to hit the United States of America, that that character – is the character, that ethos of Americans would kick in and say, yeah, no, this is not happening. And a lot of those people who I think gave answers to those that question – that they expected other people within their peer groups wanted to hear from them, which is, I think, why you also get the partisan split that you see. I don't know that it would actually play out that way. So much of issue polling like this is really just people representing what they think they're supposed to say in answer to these questions or um, what uh, they think will drive pollsters the craziest, depending on what kind of poll it is. I just have a suspicion that it would be wildly different if it actually came to pass. Or remember the degree to which isolationism prevailed in the 1930s up until the early 1940s in the United States. And then suddenly, when Japan hits Pearl Harbor in December 1941, lots of those those people who were isolationists had no hesitation about signing up and going off to war. Well, look, look at right now. I mean, we've had this uh, non-interventionist streak or a neo-isolationist streak, depending on how you want to describe it, um, for the last uh, at least 10 years, I would say. And now you have all of a sudden, boom, this huge turn very quickly where you have Americans overwhelmingly in favor of implementing a no-fly zone, which, again, I don't think that they get the full implications of what that means, but in favor of doing something and something militarily with regard to what is happening in Ukraine. It shows you how delicate this public opinion actually is. And a lot of people, I think, just got caught way out over their skis thinking that Americans are never going to be in favor of doing anything in Ukraine. And it turns out, you know, again, whether that's prudent or not is an entirely different conversation. But the American public opinion shift has been dramatic. And I think you would see something similar as well. Again, if such a terrible incident as the invasion of this country actually came to be, God willing, that's something that will never happen. Let's call it a wrap there. Before we sign off for today, though, I want to share something new with you. Um, We want to know what questions you have for us. And there's two ways that you can ask us those questions. Uh, We're going to give priority to people who go to Apple Podcasts, who leave us a five-star review, and in a comment there, ask your question. We'll give priority to those. But for people who aren't on Apple Podcasts, uh, who have uh, a different podcast app, you can email us at unwind at acton.org with your questions. And like I said, we will try to answer those weekly. We will give priority to the ones that are asked with a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. So we encourage you to do that and to participate in this show. I want to thank you for listening to Acton Unwind today. If you're listening to this podcast on our website, please look in the show notes for a link where you can subscribe directly to Act and Unwind or just search Act and Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Also, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, five-star reviews only. And again, leave us a question and we will answer it. So that, mo- and that will also help more people find this program. Thanks to Sam. Thanks to Steve for the Acton Institute. This is Eric Cohn. We'll see you next week.